Discover the tips and strategies that will help you achieve your retirement goals. I'm your host, James Canole, and this is the podcast dedicated to helping you retire well. It all starts right here on Ready for Retirement. everyone and welcome back to another episode of Ready for Retirement. I'm your host, James Canole, and this is the first episode of the year. So just wanted to stop real quick before jumping in today and saying, if you've been listening for a long time, thank you very much. It's been fun to be on this journey with you and looking forward to another fruitful year. And if you're a new listener, welcome. Really glad that you found the show and hope that you find a lot of value in it. Today for the first episode of the year, we're going to be exploring another case study type episode, which is a listener question and just unpacking the question, approaching it from a few different standpoints, and really just looking at how would I approach this as a planner. Now, quick disclaimer, as always, nothing in this episode or any episode should ever be construed as specific investment or planning advice. It's really just for illustrative educational purposes only. That being said, let's jump into the question today. The question is this. It says, hi, James, I've watched most of your YouTube videos and listened to many episodes of your podcast. You have a great understanding of various retirement strategies and financial concepts, which is evident in your clear and concise explanations. I also find your reasoning easier to follow than with other financial YouTube channels. Here's our situation. And I've changed the names here. So here's our situation. My wife is Jill, 47 years old. She earns $75,000 per year as a registered nurse with part-time flexible hours. My name is Jack. I'm 45 years old. I earn $215,000 per year and I'm a full-time engineer, and we both live in California. We have about $1.2 million in traditional pre-tax accounts and $1.6 million in post-tax accounts. Our only debt is $200,000 left on a 3.25% mortgage with monthly payments of $2,360. We've been using extra money to invest but could pay off before retiring if beneficial. I believe there are another 9 to 10 years on the mortgage if we don't pay more than minimum. I would like to retire in a year or so, and my wife would like to continue working part-time until maybe 55, where hopefully she can withdraw from her 403B in Memorial Care Retirement Plan, which is post-tax, if she qualifies for the withdrawal at 55 option. This will also provide us health care until 55, after which we may sign up for the ACA health plan. Our current plan would be to set up a 72T plan to fund our lifestyle until age 59 and a half. Jill's $75,000 of income almost fills up the federal 12% tax bracket, and we would probably set up the 72T to bring us to around $130,000 per year total. 10% of our portfolio is conservatively invested, and the other 90% is in higher risk equities. I'm comfortable with risk management and lowering the risk as we get further into retirement. Here are the issues I'd like to discuss. Can we set up a 72T if additional money is needed? Number two, will we have access to the 403B and Memorial Care Retirement Plan if Jill retires at 55? Number three, I'm not sure how to estimate expenses in the later years of life, say 80 plus. And then number four, we currently have about $1 million in home equity. How does that factor into retirement? All right. Well, thank you very much for that question. And there is a lot to unpack here. So as we're going through this, there's clearly more information to unpack here than we can do on a 20 or 30 minute episode. But I want to hit on the key pieces of as you're looking at this, the challenge is really both varying income streams of you have one income, which is for the next year or so, where both of you are working and your income is higher. Then after that, income goes down because we're going to assume that Jack retires and Jill continues to work at a part-time rate. 
And then after that, Jill retires. And then in the future after that, Social Security kicks in. And so what you kind of have is this income that starts at one place, which is much higher, and then it staggers down, and then it might stagger back up with things, things like Social Security in the future, combined with also staggered expenses. Of today, you have your expenses, which is you have your basic living expenses, plus you have a mortgage, plus you're saving for things like retirement in the future that mortgage will go away. And in the future, you're no longer going to be saving for retirement. But also in the future, you might need to add on things like health insurance if you retire before age 65 and Medicare kicks in. So the issue and the planning point you're going to be dealing with at the high level is varying degrees of income over the next several years and decades, as well as varying degrees of expenses as you have some expenses that are dropping off, some expenses that are added on, and those are going to be fully consistent over time. So here's where I like to start with this. Number one, before diving into investment stuff or tax stuff or income stuff or any of the details, let's just look really high level to say, could this be possible? Again, nothing here should be construed as advice. This is just for illustrative purposes, but let's look very broadly speaking at could this be possible? Well, here's what we do know. We know that today between pre-tax and after-tax account balances, there's about $2.8 million. We also know that today, Jack and Jill, and the names have been changed here, but Jack and Jill, it seems, are saving to their portfolio. And I don't think it's unreasonable to assume that that 2.8 might grow to $3 million by the time that Jack retires. Now, anything is possible, of course, in the next 12 months in the market, but having that portfolio at $3 million is certainly not unreasonable. And it's a nice round number to plan for as we're just looking at this from a high level. So let's assume that in the next 12 months, this $2.8 million of assets grows to $3 million. Of course, we know it could just easily drop to $2 million if there's a 30% downturn in the market, but we're going to use $3 million as a starting point. So here's what we do know. We know that they also need income of $130,000 per year. Now, I don't know if this is including taxes or if this is not including taxes. If this is how much you want after taxes, then really your expenses would be higher because you have to end up with $130,000 after paying taxes. So that would be one thing to clarify, certainly as you're looking at this, but I'm just going to use this $130,000 number. We also know that Jill has work that will continue for the next seven years after Jack retires. So if you need $130,000 and $75,000 of that is coming from Jill's work, the difference is 55, meaning 55,000 is how much would have to come from your portfolio at that point. Well, if we're taking $55,000 from a $3 million portfolio, which is the assumption we're making here, that comes out to about a 2% withdrawal rate. So as you look at that 2% withdrawal rate, it would appear, assuming you're invested correctly and assuming you get somewhat reasonable rates of return in the future, seems like a very doable withdrawal rate. It's not looking at this and saying, or it's not raising any red flags or saying that might be a significant amount to take out of your portfolio that might cause issues down the road. It seems very reasonable, whether you're looking at the rule of 4% or you're looking at guidance guardrails or you're looking at something more unique and specific to your case very much within the confines of what you might consider a sustainable withdrawal rate. Even if we look at this and say, well, we cannot guarantee that that $2.8 million today is going to go to $3 million in a year. What if there is a major market downturn? And what if we do lose 30% of our portfolio value, which will recover over time, but would still be the starting point if there was a 30% downturn in the market? Well, even if you had $2 million in your portfolio, and you were taking out $55,000 per year to supplement Jill's $75,000 through work, that's still just a withdrawal rate of 3% per year. So still well within the confines of what you, what you would expect from a sustainable withdrawal rate. So in looking at this, can Jack and Jill make this happen? 
Well, if nothing changes, then then yeah, at first glance, this is probably very doable. But as I mentioned at the beginning, one of the big challenges here is differing levels of income and differing levels of expenses that are not going to be consistent throughout retirement. Their income is going to change. So it's not just this fixed 2% or this fixed 3% withdrawal rate over time that will stagger. And the way I like to look at this is in the future, I'm sorry, in a, in a recent episode, we actually looked at this of how do you plan for retirement when you have varying withdrawal needs throughout? Well, you almost break down retirement into different sections. So to me, there's three distinct sections and even a couple of subsections as I'm looking at this high level. The first section is the time between Jack's retirement and the time between Jill's retirement. Why is that a section? Well, we know that for that section of retirement, Jill will have some income that's continuing to come in which means there's a certain amount that they would need from their portfolio to supplement Jill's income. Now, even within that section, you might have section 1A and section 1B. And what I mean by that is that there's a mortgage payment today. And depending on how soon they choose to pay down that mortgage, they may need differing amounts from their portfolio. If, for example, the mortgage is paid off halfway between uh, today and the time that Jill retires. I say that because you would need more income today from your portfolio to pay that mortgage and pay for all the other expenses, and then less income from the portfolio after the mortgage is paid off simply because there wouldn't be that extra payment to the mortgage. So you want to break down sections almost in terms of what's that consistent withdrawal rate needed from the portfolio to supplement any income from things like part-time income or social security or anything else. And so that first section, the time between Jack's retirement and Jill's retirement, if there's a consistent income need to supplement Jill's income, great, understand what that is. But if the mortgage gets paid off at any point between there, create subsections or even just different sections there because that will be differing withdrawal amounts needed from the portfolio to supplement the same level of basic living expenses. For example, and I'm just making this word section or subsection up, you can call this whatever you want, but in subsection 1A of their retirement, they need $55,000 to supplement Jill's income to be able to generate $130,000 total. But once that mortgage is paid off, what if they only need $25,000 from their portfolio to supplement Jill's income? Let's assume that they only need $100,000 per year total once the mortgage is paid off. Well, $75,000 is coming from Jill's income. Only $25,000 would need be needed from the portfolio, which reduces the withdrawal rate that would be needed to be able to make this still happen. Once that's done, though, once Jill is done working, that starts the second unique section. So you have section one, and I'm going to label it into subsection one, subsection two, or subsection A, subsection B. And then you have section two, which to me is a time between Jill's retirement and Social Security kicking in. The reason for this is between the time Jill retires and Social Security kicking in, you are fully dependent on your portfolio for all of your living expenses. That's $75,000 of income from Jill's work, that's gone. So if you need $130,000 per year, or maybe that drops to say $100,000 per year if the mortgage is paid off, the entirety of that is coming from your portfolio, which is really going to ramp up the withdrawal rate that you need to fund retirement for those years. And then the third section, well, that's when Social Security kicks in, which again puts less pressure on the portfolio, meaning that in order to still be able to generate the same level of expenses, not as much as having to come from your portfolio because Social Security is kicked in, which is covering a part of that, and it's a lesser amount that's coming from the portfolio. This may seem like I'm overcomplicating this, and, and really the goal of doing this is to make retirement and withdrawals 
less complicated. And go back to last week's episode, if this isn't quite clear yet, we talked about this in more detail and the just from a foundational level, why do we do this? We do this because it's not like you retire and just take one fixed amount out of your portfolio in most people's situations. For most people, it's a little bit more like this, where it's maybe a little bit messier because income and expenses, they're not going up and down or they're not staying consistent all the way throughout retirement. And we do this because this allows us to identify what withdrawal rates are needed at differing times throughout retirement. Now, let's go back to what maybe could be considered the most risky section of retirement here for Jack and Jill. And the riskiest section is probably that section between when Jill retires and when Social Security kicks in. Why is it riskiest? Well, it's riskiest because at that point, there is the least amount of help from any outside income sources. There's no part-time work. There's no social security. It is 100% on your portfolio to be able to generate the entirety of these needs. So if we go back to the $130,000 that would be needed, now I know that we really want to adjust this for what would the number actually be without a mortgage, but you'll also need to add in health insurance and maybe add in a couple other things. So I'm just going to use that $130,000 for this example. So we're in the second section. Jill's 55, so there's no longer income coming in from work. They are retired. And $130,000 needs to come from your portfolio. Well, here's where we need to make some assumptions of what will your portfolio balance be at that point, And will that balance be enough to be able to generate these levels of income? To start, let's assume the portfolio is still at $3 million. Now, they've been pulling money from their portfolio at this point to supplement income from Jill's part-time work. But let's assume the portfolio has been growing by a little bit to make up for that income. And it's just been a conservative time in the market. So let's just assume the portfolio is still at $3 million. Well, if you take $130,000 per year from a $3 million portfolio, that's a withdrawal rate of 4%. So you look at that and you say, great, you know, I've heard of the rule 4%. I can safely take out 4% and that portfolio will sustain me for all retirement. But a couple of things. The rule of 4% was designed when using back-tested data for a time period of 30 years, meaning it wasn't designed to say you can take out 4% forever. You can't take that out for 50 years or 60 years. It was designed to say, how do you have a portfolio that can last for 30 years? And when you look at that, it's not necessarily saying, how do you have a portfolio that can last forever? This isn't saying that this portfolio invested this way can last for 50 years or 60 years or 70 years. It's really saying, how do you get this to last for what the traditional retirement time frame might be, which in this research was 30 years. So as we're looking back at Jack and Jill, well, they're in a position where they're looking at a 4% withdrawal rate in this scenario, starting at age 55 or so. So 30 years puts you in the mid 80s, which with life expectancies today and the way things are going, certainly may not necessarily be long enough. Now, the rule of 4% is also fairly conservative of saying in the worst case scenario of all market events, looking backwards, you could take 4% out and be okay over this 30 years, but just want to look at it from that standpoint to make sure we're using rules in a proper context. Also, as I've mentioned many times on this podcast, there are other approaches. It's not like the 4% rule is the only way that you can approach taking income out in retirement, but they depend upon how you're invested. So I will say at a start, taking 4% out in your mid-50s is not necessarily a bad thing, especially when you consider that Social Security will kick in in the future and reduce some of the pressure on that. But here's where planning becomes a little tricky. If we knew exactly what the portfolio balance was going to be every single year, we knew exactly what the market was going to do over the next several years and decades, this would be fairly easy to say, Jack and Jill, can you retire and be able to generate sustainable levels of income? The challenge is we don't. 
So let's look at that $3 million again. Well, if that's still $3 million by the time that Jill also retires, then they would take out about 4% per year to be able to maintain their standard of living. But what if the market doesn't do exactly that? What if the market grows by 10% rate of return from the time that Jack retires until the time that Jill retires, which is a time period of seven years? So what if the market, or I guess more specifically, what if their portfolio grows at 10%, which really means it's growing about 8% net because they're taking 2% out per year to live on. So if they're getting a consistent 10% per year, just for the sake of example, there's an 8% compounded growth rate still happening, which means by the time that Jill retires, there's actually $5.1 million in the portfolio. So if they actually had $5.1 million in the portfolio, then taking $130,000 out per year is a withdrawal rate of 2.5%. So you look at that and say, okay, that seems pretty sustainable. That's something that could probably last for the rest of their lifetime, assuming they're invested the correct way. And under reasonable market assumptions, probably GP just fine going forward. But what if it is not that 10% per year growth rate assumption from the time that Jack retires and Tom Chill retires? What if the market doesn't do so hot? What if the market loses 5% per year on average? Or I, again, more specifically, what if Jack and Jill's portfolio loses 5% per year over the next seven years, which would be a total return of minus 30% over that time period? Well, if you compound that along with taking 2% out each year, now that $3 million portfolio turns into $1.8 million of portfolio value by the time that Jack and Jill are both retired, which is seven years after Jack is done working. Well, if you look at that, and if you're taking $130,000 per year out of a $1.8 million portfolio, now you're looking at a withdrawal rate of 7.2%. So you can see where retirement planning can get a little bit tricky, or a lot of bit tricky, because we just can't understand exactly what the market's going to do, or we can't know exactly what the market's going to do ahead of time. And depending on what the market does, could take something that's a very sustainable withdrawal rate today, when we look at very reasonable assumptions going forward, and could very quickly turn those into unsustainable withdrawal rates, depending upon what the market does, depending on what your spending does, depending on these numbers of factors. To me, this is a big reason I like a guardrails approach here, where retirement spending shouldn't be a one-time withdrawal rate that simply indexes for inflation. Really, it should be something that has some rules around it, where look, if things are going really, really well, spend more. If your spending starts dropping too low, Make sure that you increase your spending so you can enjoy what your portfolio has done for you. You can enjoy what your savings have done for you. But if things aren't going as well, or if there's a particularly downtime in the market, can you cut spending temporarily? Don't cut it permanently, but if you can cut it temporarily, what that does is it puts less pressure on your portfolio as your portfolio is also falling with the market, giving it time to recover or accelerating the time, the recovery, so it doesn't take quite as long when the market does recover. This is also a challenge if you've ever done a Monte Carlo analysis. You might have seen something that says, hey, you're either going to die with $50 million to your name or you're going to run out of money by the time you're 75 years old. And you look at that and you go, what on earth? How does that apply to anything? How is that helpful? Well, it's really not because there's so many potential variables with the market, with inflation, with your spending, with your life expectancy, with all these different things combining that when you apply all these variables and look at randomly dispersed combinations of all of them, you're going to get a very, very wide margin of potential outcomes. So it's not so much about looking at your plan in one single point of time and saying, am I okay or not? That's a good starting point. But really, you want to make sure that you're following up on that so that as things are happening, either good things or bad things, you're adjusting your plan accordingly. Now, back to Jack and Jill's plan. The third section would be when Social Security kicks in and beyond. 
I don't know what their social security benefits would be, but what I do know is it will reduce the withdrawal rates that will have to come from their portfolio. So that would be another good thing to look at is, okay, what will our expenses be at that point? How much of those expenses will come from our portfolio versus how much will come from social security? And in doing that, it will allow you to estimate what your withdrawal rate will be at those points, looking at where your portfolio is projected to be, both in good times, bad times, and then maybe everything in between, and then using a estimated expense that you'll have from your portfolio to find those withdrawal rates. Now, the next thing to look at here is if money is going to be coming out of your portfolio before age 59 and a half, where is the best place for it to come from? Jack asked the question, he says, we will have access to a 403B and Memorial Care Retirement Plan fund if Jill retires at 55, or he asked, will we have access to that? And the answer is yes, you should. If you retire from a company and you have a 403B or 401K or a plan like that there, if you retire there at 55 or later, you can access funds from that account without paying the 10% early withdrawal penalty. You will still pay taxes, you just won't pay the early withdrawal penalty. Now, here's something to be very clear on. If you retire at 54 and leave that plan there until 55, that does not mean that you can pull funds from it. You have to have been employed by that employer at least until 55. And if after that you leave employment, then you have access to those funds. So for Jack and Jill's case, that is certainly one place they could access funds from. You also, Jack, mentioned that you have $1.6 million in post-tax accounts. I don't know if post-tax means Roth. I don't know if it means brokerage accounts. If it's a Roth, probably don't touch that for as long as possible, even though you could access the principal at any time. So the nice thing about Roth IRAs is any money that you put in them, you can pull out at any time without penalty. But those might be some of your most valuable assets. So I don't know what the overall breakdown is between Roth, between pre-tax, between brokerage accounts. But for most people, the Roth IRA is the most valuable asset that you have, and you want that compound growth to keep happening for later years into retirement, ideally. So if that's the case, you may want to leave the Roth there, but if some of that's brokerage account, you can certainly access that at any time. Now, on top of that, Jack also asked about a 72T distribution, and we don't have enough time in today's podcast to get into the details of what this is, but the rule of 72T says that if you have, say, a traditional IRA, you can't access that money until age 59 and a half without paying a penalty, unless you take substantially equal payments for the longer of five years or until you turn age 59 and a half. So let's look at that. There's three ways to calculate this. There's something called the amortization method. There's something called the annuitization method. And there's something called the minimum distribution, also known as the life expectancy method. And all three of these methods are just different ways in which you can calculate what's called your substantially equal payments from your IRA that, again, must last for the longer of either five years or until age 59 and a half. Meaning, if you're 50 years old and you want to do this, you must take these payments for at least until you turn 59 and a half. So that'd be 10 years of payments. If you are 58 years old and you're implementing a 72T distribution, you must take them for five years, even though that will take you to 63. So well past the point at which you become eligible to take money out of your IRA penalty-free, you still must keep taking those payments for five years. That's something very important to note. Now, why do people do this? people do this because it's a way of getting around the 10% early withdrawal penalty. I'm not necessarily a huge fan of doing this in most cases. Now, some cases there are absolutely practical reasons 
to do so, or maybe you need the funds from your IRA and it's just a way of getting around the 10% early withdrawal penalty. But keep in mind, if you miss even one year's of annual payments, the entirety of your 72T distributions get hit with the 10% penalty. So it is something that requires careful planning. And you do still pay taxes, you just don't pay that 10% penalty. Here's another thing to note. When you do this, your full IRA balance must be used in the calculation of the 72T distribution of these substantially equal payments. So one of the best things that you can do is knowing that the full balance of the IRA must be used, work backwards. Don't start with looking at your IRA and then running a calculation based upon either the amortization method or the annuitization method or life expectancy method. Again, we'll maybe do another episode in the future. What does this all even mean? But to start with, work backwards. Understand how much do I need for my traditional IRA? From there, you can work backwards to see what IRA balance is required to be able to generate that need for the five years or six years or seven years or however long you'll have to take the 72T distribution for. And you work backwards to determine the balance that is needed to that you have in your IRA to be able to support this. For example, maybe you need $20,000 per year. And after working backwards, you determine that you'll need to have $500,000 in your IRA to be able to support that. But today your IRA balance is a million dollars. Well, what you could do is you could transfer $500,000 to a separate IRA, leaving $500,000 in your current IRA. In the 72T calculation, it does need to be done on the entire balance, but it does not have to aggregate all IRAs. So ideally, you'll set off one IRA to the side or even create a separate IRA and put the balance to the side and have calculated the amount you need in one balance to be able to generate these distributions for the time frame necessary, which leaves the rest of your IRA free to continue growing or doing what you need to do with it. So that's just a really basic overview of how these work. But for Jack and Jill's situation, I don't necessarily know that you need a 72T distribution. You could look at taking funds out of Jill's 403B. You could look at living on after-tax funds. If either of those are options, in many cases, that's probably better than a 72T distribution. But again, this is not specific advice. I don't know enough details to really get into the weeds of what would be best for your situation. This is just an overview of all the options. The next part of Jack's question is he said, we currently have a million dollars in home equity. How does that factor into our retirement? It really doesn't, unless you ever plan on moving. There's a famous quote that says, your home is a liability masquerading as an asset. And it's a little bit tongue in cheek because yes, your home is an asset. It is real estate. You could sell it. There's value to it. There's a million dollars of value in this particular example. But if you're living on it or if you're living in it, it's not really equity that really does anything for you. As long as that is your primary residence, it's not like you can draw down the value of your home, like you could draw down the value of your IRA, like you could draw down the value of a 401k. It's just there and the equity is really tied up. Now, if you were to ever move, say downsize, well, then you would factor that into your retirement planning because then there would be a portion of that equity that you could invest to create income for you. Or maybe if you don't have long-term care insurance, you look at this and say, okay, the home is our long-term care insurance policy. If we ever need it, we would sell the home and the equity from that would go into something. But for as long as you're living in your home, it's really not something I would include in your retirement plan because you can't just draw it down like you could other assets. So that's just a big high-level look at Jack's 
question here. As he's looking at retirement and early retirement and staggered income sources and different expenses over time, some other things I'd be looking at certainly that we didn't have a chance or time to cover today is number one, what's your asset allocation? So look at withdrawal rates, knowing that if you're invested the right way, your investment should be able to support certain withdrawal rates. But we cannot just assume these withdrawal rates will happen regardless of what you're invested in or regardless of what your asset allocation is. So these withdrawal rates that a lot of the research is done upon, the 4% rule, guidance guardrails, things like that, it's assuming the balances are invested in a certain way. So make sure that your assets are in alignment with what would be needed to support these withdrawal rates. Number two, we did not talk at all about tax strategy. Tax strategy in terms of where you should pull funds from first, tax strategy in terms of should you do any Roth conversions the first year, tax strategies in terms of anything else like that. So that would be another thing that you'd want to be looking at. Um, three, probably the biggest thing that I just want to emphasize one more time is the need for ongoing adjustment. You can see here as we ran different examples of what can we expect in market growth over the next few years. Well, we can't expect anything, but we can look at different potential outcomes, good outcomes, bad outcomes, anything in between. And what we saw is the impact of those outcomes could skew your actual withdrawal rates by pretty significant margins. So make sure that this isn't just, a, okay, I'm good to go, I'm done, as much as can I do this, and then continue to revisit it as things happen over time. And then number four, make sure that insurance coverages are looked after. This could be things like health insurance between the time that you're both retired and Medicare kicks in. This could be things like long-term care insurance of do you need to get a long-term care insurance policy or can you structure part of your assets in a way to self-insure? Or this could be things like life insurance of how would these numbers change if one of you predeceased the other in terms of that cuts out one social security benefit, in terms of that cuts out potentially an income for some time, that reduces your standard deduction and compresses some of the marginal tax brackets that the surviving spouse would be left with. So make sure that you have a plan, not just to say, can we make it, but that protects against any catastrophic event, whether it's a health event or a long-term care event or a life event, making sure to protect all this. All right. Well, that is it for today's episode. Thank you very much for that question. I hope that was helpful. If you have not already done so as the New Year's here, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, check us out on YouTube as well. There's these recordings or there's these podcast episodes as well as more. And the intention of all of it is to help you create a more secure retirement. So check us out on YouTube. If you've not already done so, it would mean the world to me if you would leave a review on iTunes. It helps more people find us. It helps us just become more visible as people are looking for good resources for retirement planning. With that being said, thank you for listening and I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Ready for Retirement podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and let me know by leaving a five-star review. And as always, for a list of the notes and the resources mentioned in today's episode, you can find those at the Ready for Retirement website, which is readyforretirement.co. That's readyforretirement.co. And if you have a question that you would like for me to answer in a future episode, then you can also go to the Ready for Retirement website, readyforretirement.co. There's a page called Submit Your Question where you can submit a question for me to answer in a future episode. Thanks as always for listening, and I'll see you next time. Hey everyone, it's me again for the disclaimer. Please be smart about this. Before doing anything, please be sure to consult with your tax planner or financial planner. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment, tax, legal, or other financial advice. It is for informational purposes only.